This forum is part of City Club's Education Innovation Series, sponsored by Nordson Corporation and PNC Bank, with additional support from the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation. We're grateful for their generous support. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. Today is January 29th. We are once again live from the studios of our public media partner, 90.3 WCPN Cleveland. We're very grateful for their support and partnership. The United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights affirms education is a fundamental human right for everyone. It's one of the most powerful tools in lifting socially excluded children and adults out of poverty and into the mainstream and narrows the gender gap that often defines outcomes for girls and women. And while humanity has made a great deal of progress in expanding educational access in recent decades, as you might imagine, COVID has led to some large challenges. At one point, UNESCO estimated that 91% of the school-aged population around the world was actually not in school for the better part of 2020. 91%. And while many American children will eventually return to school and in-person learning, that is not the case in other countries where education, and especially the education of girls, is not a high priority. The failure to educate girls has both economic and social consequences, and that is our primary topic today with two experts committed to improving global education. Let me introduce our Friday Forum speakers. Jennifer Rigg is the executive director of the Global Campaign for Education in U.S., a coalition of, 80, of over 80 organizations that promotes access to quality education as a human right and mobilizes the public to create political will in the United States and internationally to ensure universal access to quality education worldwide. She has more than 20 years of experience in international education and development, public policy, coalition building, strategic communications, and public management. Also with us, Dr. Justin Van Fleet. He's president of Their World, a global children's charity committed to ending the global education crisis. He's also the executive director of the Global Business Coalition for Education, which began as an initiative of Their World and focuses on bringing together the expertise and resources of the business community with the Campaign for Global Education. Dr. Van Fleet's expertise is centered on education in developing countries, particularly the role of corporate social investments and philanthropic financing of education systems, as well as the dynamics influencing public-private partnerships. I want to mention, too, that today's forum is the Nathu Agarwal and Roy Blackburn Forum established by City Club members Raj and Karen Agarwal in honor of their fathers. Big thanks to them. If you have questions for either of our speakers, though, text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them into our program. Jennifer Rigg, Justin Van Fleet, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for having us. It is wonderful to have you. Um, Jennifer Rigg, is there a crisis in girls' education around the world today? Absolutely there is. So prior to COVID, approximately 130 million girls were already out of school before the, the pandemic even started. And as you said, thank you for, for emphasizing that we're, we're talking about 
all of school-aged children and the impact for anybody who has a young person at home who's learning through remote learning. We all know how disruptive it can be for the whole household, for the whole community as well, for a young person not to have access to school, but for their future, for girls and young women in particular, our partners at the Malala Fund estimate that as a result of the global pandemic, 20 million girls in developing countries may never return to the classroom. It is absolutely critical that we all take action so that we can reverse that trend. And Justin Van Fleet, how do you see it? I fully agree with Jen. I mean, this is the huge issue pre-COVID, you know, over 100 million girls not in school around the world. And as you mentioned, when COVID hit, 1.5 billion children had their lives flipped upside down when it came to their education. And the biggest threat we have now to girls' education are the poorest, most marginalized girls who may not return to school once this crisis is over. And I think that's the biggest um, priority that we really need to put, put a focus on, is that these young girls and young women who had education as their lifeline, the key to a better future, the key to unlocking that future, um, are now at risk. And we need to put all of our efforts into making sure that they get back into the classroom and create a brighter future, not just for themselves, but their families and their communities. Justin Van Fleet, I wonder if you could put this into a broader historical context for us. I mean, what kind of progress was made in the second half of the 20th century with regard to this issue? So in, in the year 2000, um, there was a thing called the Millennium Development Goals at the United Nations. And Every country joined on board and said, we want to make universal primary education a priority. And overnight, governments changed policies. School fees were eliminated. Focus was on getting young girls and young boys into the classroom. And between 2000 and 2010, over 100 million children who were out of school enrolled in school. And then we saw the numbers sort of hover around 60 million plus or minus, and it would go up a little bit, it would go down. And what we found, it was the most marginalized children that had yet to be reached. And these are children from the poorest households, children with disabilities, um, children in rural communities, children without access to technology. And so with the new sustainable development goals of the UN, there's been a huge focus on trying to reach the most marginalized, especially girls, and get them into school. And as, as we mentioned, you know, COVID is sort of put a, a halt on the progress we were making. And now it's up to all of us not to sort of um, step back, but actually to ramp up our efforts on, on funding and, and policies that help kids go back to the safe classrooms. Jennifer Rigg, this COVID's impact on these on, on this issue, is it, the, is it a, should we think of it as a pause or a backsliding? Mm, great question. Um, let's hope it's a pause and then we can really build back better. Um, I think it, it is, um, you know, when we look at the data around what happened during the Ebola outbreak in Liberia, for example, 21% of primary school age girls never returned back to school. Now, when we think about what are some of the barriers that are keeping girls out of school or causing them to, to um, not be able to continue, right? Um, some of the impacts become amplified in the midst of a crisis, child marriage, poverty, uh, distance to school, lack of safe access to, to toilets, to sanitation, to hygiene. Um, the school fees that Justin just mentioned really absolutely are a huge barrier. And, and oftentimes what we're finding is young women in particular are being called upon not only to take care of their younger siblings, but also becoming um, a breadwinner for the whole family. So it's um, the way for us to make sure that it's only a pause and as brief as possible is to make sure that those supports are available for young women, for girls and their families, and that we together 
help to ensure that the, the systems uh, post-COVID are even more resilient so that anybody in any emergency setting has full access to quality, inclusive education. Jennifer Brigg is executive director of the Global Campaign for Education, United States. Justin Van Fleet is also with us. He's president of Their World, executive director as well of the Global Business Coalition for Education. If you have questions about the state of girls' education, the future of girls' education, and also just the state of education access around the world, Text those questions to 330-541-5794 or tweet them at the City Club, and we will work it into the program. This is the City Club Friday Forum. Um, Justin Van Fleet, looking at uh, how this plays out in the United States, is sort of a question for both of you, but we'll start with you. Um, How do we see, I mean, we know that you were alluding earlier to the hardest to reach, the most marginalized children. And we know that, say, here in greater Cleveland, those are often children in families that are homelessness or facing um, facing a, a high level, a high degree of um, what's euphemistically referred to as mobility in the education field. Um, who else are we talking about? Yeah, I think that's, that's the question. If you think of a young person from of an underserved community in the U.S. or a, a low-income family, going to school was the great equalizer or had the potential to be a great equalizer. And when COVID hit, you know, with all of these children forced out of the classroom, it became a great um, divider. Children, if you didn't have access to connectivity, if you had one device to share among several siblings, all of these factors um, made what was going to school much, much harder to have access to. And because of that, you know, the numbers that Jen cites of, of young girls not going back to school post-COVID it's a real issue, not around the world, only around the world, but also here in the U.S. Um, child marriage, having to start work early, all of those are things that happen here. Um, and also you know, learning stop, stopping because of lack of food on the table and all of these other um, ecosystem elements that help a young person learn and thrive. I mean, it, it's not just an issue in poor countries or rich countries. It's an issue in all countries and all communities. Jennifer Rigg, how do you see the state of the state of affairs in the United States with regard to this issue? I absolutely agree. One addition, in addition to families experiencing homelessness, um, is to you know we can see corollaries between what's happening locally, nationally, and globally when we think about um, families that are are migrating, are moving in some shape or form. So globally, for example, refugee children are five times more likely to be out of school than non-refugees. And so in the midst of what's happening uh, during the, the pandemic, we know that any type of crisis or emergency is affecting young people, even, you know, it's being felt in a magnified way. Um, we're so grateful to teachers um, who are providing those types of supports, um, as well as all education support professionals we know who are really going the extra mile, especially right now, when through remote learning, Lots of young people might not have any type of internet access, technology access. It, that looks a little different in different locations across the U.S. Um, from what it might look like in in Guatemala, in Kenya, in Bangladesh, for example. Um, but the the basic human right to quality, inclusive education is the same, no matter where we where you might be located. I, I want to return to the to what's happening with refugee children, both uh, both in as they are sort of in their sort of refugee journey, but also those who have been resettled here in the United States. But first, Justin Van Fleet, I, I'd like to ask you to kind of take a step back 
and make the case. What is the you you work with a coalition of businesses on to to make the business case for this as an issue that they ought to um, that they ought to invest in? And I'd like to I'd like you to share that please with our audience. I mean, the the case for girls' education at large is is so impactful. If if we had every single girl in low and middle income countries in secondary school, estimates show a boost GDP ten percent. That's a huge increase in in gross domestic product of a country. I mean, we're talking trillions of dollars. It's it's this is not a small intervention. There's also estimates that look at the impact of the gigatons of emissions that would be avoided due to and, and sort of help curb climate change if girls just had access to school. So there are all of these broader societal interests um, at large that can be solved by, by girls' education. And businesses have a key interest in making sure that girls go to school. This is the next generation of their workforce. You know, They want the best talent with the skills to be able to enter the workforce, create, innovate, create the next wave of innovations and solutions. They also want consumers. You know, And, and by every year of school a girl has, their income or the wages go up about 10 to 12%. So a business has a self-interest in making sure girls go to school, both from the talent pipeline and from the consumer pipeline, but also it's a broader social call to action. And a lot of companies in our Global Business Coalition for Education put girls' education front and center, and more and more are starting to look at what they can do, whether it's their own internal policies, how they can be um, doing more public relations to promote the issue, um, to their own philanthropy. So it is a, is an important issue that has huge, huge trillion dollar outcomes for, for society. Could you take a step back to the very first thing you said and unpack the or connect all of the dots between investing in girls' education and a 10% increase in GDP? The knock-on benefits of girls' education is tremendous. If you just think of one young woman who goes to school who otherwise wouldn't go to school, her children are less likely to die before the age of five. She's much more likely to be literate and be able to read to her children, which means the three to five children she has will also grow up and go to school. And it has this knock on economic benefit in societies. And so educating one girl is really a ripple effect that goes out and has economic and social consequences for health as well. So it's it's not a small thing. People think educating one girl, it, it doesn't make a difference, but it, it, it impacts an entire society. Jennifer Rigg, I've been thinking a lot lately about the concept of the rights of future generations. We often think of very short-term gains and short-term investments. Um, and the way Justin Van Fleet describes this, it's, uh, it is about honoring the rights of future generations to achieve, to, uh, to have economic opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, starting today, and, and that's, very, that's very true, moving into future generations. Um, so at, at the Global Campaign for Education US and, and with some of our partners around the globe, we work with youth leaders and youth advocates. Um, and it's, uh, it's so impressive to me how young people themselves are really leading on, in, on this issue. Young, young women, young men really innately understand these connections. And, um, and the great thing, too, is in, when people of all ages reach out to their policymakers and speak up about how important uh, the, the human right to quality inclusive education is, um, that's also what makes a difference for, for future generations. Um, in terms of the economic case that, that uh, 
Justin just uh, described so well, one piece that we find really makes a big difference, especially when we're thinking about policies in the midst of a, a global crisis at the moment, each additional year of schooling that a young woman has access to can increase her earnings when she when that girl becomes an adult by 20%. So as we look at ways to build even stronger uh, gender equity and parity um, into the workforce and then look at the impact down the road for, for her uh, future family, um, each additional year of access to school makes a huge difference. I mentioned, um, you, you all mentioned refugee children earlier, and I said I wanted to come back to that issue. Jennifer Rigg, in the, at the moment, how are resettled refugees doing in the United States? I think it really varies depending on where uh, they might be located um, for access to education. Um, many local school systems um, will you know, really be working with refugee resettlement organizations. Um, Pre-COVID, that was easier to do, right, in terms of helping to, to connect in person. Um, so technology becomes critical. Um, and for a young person who maybe just went through the resettlement process, um, of course, the, they might not have the same level of access um, to, uh, to supports for English language learners um, and the like. Being able to get that support, learning in a language that you can understand is so is so vital. Um, as we know, refugee resettlement organizations often work with, with local communities. And so local faith-based groups, organizations often in the past have also helped to welcome and, and provide those types of supports for community building. Um, and many volunteers, many people around the country are still doing that in a COVID safe way, but the bear, you know, it, it just becomes a little bit more challenging. Um, I think it, it allows for us to become more innovative in how we really reach refugee children. Justin Van Fleet, what about the state of refugee children around the world? Yeah, I mean, e echoing what Jen said, it, it's really um, context specific, but we have uh, some really great examples of communities stepping up to help refugee children get an education even despite um, the, the pandemic. Um, we have a Their World project in Lebanon and, and our, our colleague Hiba who runs that um, when, when children were unable to go to school, she was running an early childhood program for children with special needs, vulnerable Lebanese and refugee kids. And she said, let's, let's put these on video. Let me WhatsApp these lessons out to, to mothers so that they can actually, when they're home with their young children, be able to engage in early childhood development. And she said, I think I can reach 18,000 families. And I said, that's huge, but let's, let's go for it. And our project team worked with her. We launched this project. Fast forward, she's surpassed over 100,000 families using these lessons. There's an offer on the table from a Lebanese television station that was actually put these on TV because of the impact of these. So it's it's a initial program that was for Lebanese, or I'm sorry, for refugee children from the Syria crisis that actually is a huge knock-on effect for for local children of the own country or their own country. So it's not just supporting refugee education can actually help local host populations. We have similar work in Greece where we've all heard the terrible stories of the tens of thousands of refugees in the Greek islands and, and the mainlands and, and the horrible Maria fire that, that burned down 14,000 refugees homeless in, in November of last year. Um, and we've had programs where we're actually going out to the camps. We have take-home packets and kids are eager to learn. It's the number one priority of mothers and fathers that their kids are in school, that they have the opportunity to create a better future. And so our projects are just a small part of that broader global effort to really bring education to every single child, even refugees.
that WhatsApp story is extraordinary, Justin. Um, does Facebook know? Are they aware of it? Have they offered yeah, to support hopefully it? Hopefully, after this uh, this program, they will be aware of it. <laughs> they can give us a call. Yeah, that's it. That is really that. That's really intense. That's a that's wonderful. Jennifer Rigg, where else are there promising stories of progress in this area? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So um, we work closely with colleagues at Education Cannot Wait, which is hosted uh, at UNICEF across the United Nations system where there's that keen focus on working with children in particular. Um, and Education Cannot Wait really helps to accelerate access for, um, for young people to education in any type of emergency setting. And as soon as COVID hit, um, Yasmin Sharif, who heads up Education Cannot Wait, and her team moved extremely fast uh, to make sure that uh, resources were deployed faster than ever before. We know, for example, um, that you know the the access might look different, you know, uh, in different locations. Um, like Justin mentioned, um, in some places uh, there might only be access to one radio for the entire community. Um, some of our colleagues, for example, at Save the Children have found that um, in some nomadic populations, having some type of access to, uh, to books in local languages through camel libraries it's, is what's working to make sure that whatever it is, you know, allows for the, the safe access at that local level. That's where, um, where civil society organizations and international organizations and, and local partners are able to reach young people. Did you just say that the camel is the bookmobile? Yes, exactly. That's amazing. I would really love to see a picture of that. We're talking with Jennifer Rigg. She's the executive director of the Global Campaign for Education U.S. and Justin Van Fleet, president of Their World and executive director of the Global Business Coalition for Education. It's your City Club Friday Forum. I'm Dan Malthrop. If you have questions for our guests, please text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794 to text your question. Or if you're on Twitter, tweet it at the City Club and we'll work it into the program. I've kind of a personal question for both of you. Um, the world of education is large. There are great many needs in uh, education, public and private education here in the United States. I'm curious what drew you both to this global work. Jennifer, can we start with you? Sure, yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I come from a, from a family of educators at, at all levels. Um, and also grew up in the civil rights as well as the women's movements, literally protesting, joining marches and community meetings before I could walk or talk. Um, and, um, and, and also was lucky to grow up with, um, with fam close family members who worked in Ethiopia, worked in Thailand, both on education and community development writ large. Um, and then early in my career, uh, when I worked for CARE, um, I was helping to build public policy and advocacy linkages of what was working to create systemic long-term change across countries, across communities, um, and wonderfully had the chance to, for example, in working in Cambodia, to engage with, with teachers uh, who uh, post -conflict, in post-conflict situations were um, literally holding school outside of um, an open community uh, center or next to it, uh, you know, a large tree, whatever you could find, right, as a way to, to convene young people. So I have really found personally that uh, that linkage between access to education is, is such a critical driver, 
for helping to, to reduce all other types of inequities and, and helping young people for generations to come. Justin Van Fleet. So I grew up in, in rural Appalachia on the West Virginia, Maryland border. And when I was in high school, I always wanted to, to be an exchange student, to see something outside, <laughs> outside of my own hometown. And our home community came together and we did fundraisers and they really supported me. And I went on an exchange to Bolivia of all places. I had to get out a map. I had no idea where this was, but I went from one mountain town to another mountain town on the top of the Andes. Um, and that was the first time, I was, I was 16 at the time, where I went to school and saw young people my age who were um, child laborers, shining shoes, selling candies, selling cigarettes, and not going to school. And it really just struck me as it's such a vast inequity. You know, I grew up in an area which isn't the most well-off area of the U.S., you know, rural Appalachia, but everybody still, for the most part, had access to education. Um, and so it, when I came back, that really stuck with me. And that's sort of what I, I sort of set out on this human rights journey. How do we make sure that everyone has the right to realize their potential? And then as I got older, I realized it's not just a rich country, poor country issue. It's an issue in the U.S. It's an issue in, in every other country across the world. You know, even in my hometown today, I think 50 percent of young people aren't in early childhood education. Um, so there's so much work to do, and I've, I've always sort of been con um, committed to the issue since I had that experience where I, I realized I sort of took for granted the fact that I went to school and, and realizing that at such a young age was really shocking to myself. Justin Van Fleet, um, I'd like to ask you what exactly some of the global corporations you're working with are doing. How are they investing? What, uh, where are they putting their time and their resources on this issue? So you've, it runs the gamut. And companies can, they have so many different assets and levers that they can pull to help support uh, public education around the world. It can be everything from their own philanthropy work that they do and funding good organizations that are doing quality work in their own communities to, to help kids go to school. But we have a lot of other companies that are actually looking internally. What is it that they're doing uh, with their own human resources policies? Do they have childcare policies for their employees' children? Um, what is their CEO out there saying? Are they promoting social issues? When they go and they have a meeting with a government and it's about selling goods and services, do they actually bring up some of these other issues as well as part of that? And how are they using their own employees and the products and services that they develop for, for social good? So we have a lot of tech companies. We In the, in the U.S. here, we had um, uh, uh, HP and a few other companies came together and we made sure that we got technology in April out to underserved um, communities and cities in the U.S. so that young people that were forced out of school actually had devices to connect to the Internet. We had over 100 companies offer free and reduced fee services to school systems and teachers around the world to help support them in delivering education. So there's a lot of goodwill out there, but it's really moving from random acts of kindness to creating systems change and really getting companies to dig deep and, and really find out what they can do beyond just philanthropy to create change. We're talking with Justin Van Fleet. He's president of Their World and ED executive director of the Global Business Coalition for Education. Jennifer Rigg is with us as well. She's the executive director of the Global Campaign for Education U.S. And they're both here to talk about the crisis in education access around the world and specifically the crisis in education access for girls and why they're making the case why that's worth investing in. This is your City Club Friday Forum. I'm Dan Malthrop. And if you'd like to ask them, ask a question as part of our conversation. Join the conversation now. You can text your question to 330-541-5794. 
The number again is 330-541-5794 to text your question. Or you can tweet it if you're on Twitter, tweet it at the City Club, and we will work it into the program. Uh, first question for you both. Um, how, given everything that we've been discussing in the case you've made, how can you explain why there's so little attention to educating adolescent girls? Jennifer Rigg. Thank you for the question. Uh, we really appreciate it, and thanks for your engagement. You know, uh, we agree that there shouldn't be uh, this level of, of attention. I think Malala's work has really helped uh, to, to raise to, uh, to new levels the interest in reaching girls and specifically girls' education. Um, and, you know, some of the other factors that, that play into it is young women, especially as they get older, unfortunately might be invisible. So, um, you know, as young women are dropping out of school to take care of their younger siblings or to get a job to support their family, people might not see this issue um, as much as, as other issues that you would see on a day-to-day -day basis. But it's absolutely critical, um, I think, in terms of helping to, to add more uh, so that people can, can take even stronger action. Um, one of the things that we saw at the end of the congressional session is that in addition to looking at, at funding levels, there was really strong bipartisan support um, across mul you know, multiple members of Congress to uh, really bolster the work that the U.S. government's doing on girls' education, especially in crisis and conflict settings. And um, similarly, there's a piece of legislation called the Girls' Leadership Engagement Agency and Development Act, or the Girls' Lead Act, um, that really picked up steam and, and helps to recognize and promote girls' civic and political leadership as a priority, including girls' education. Justin Van Fleet, there's a... There's a a question here about um, I'll just read it and and we can discuss kind of kind of how it how it works. But there's this this whole issue brings up a whole lot of questions about gender imbalance and what how boys and men operate in the world and how women and girls operate in the world. But the question was this: I fully understand the value of bringing all children, especially girls, into the education environment. But on a regional basis in the United States, where significantly more than 50% of college enrollment and graduates are now female, at what point do we curtail, either curtail preferential programs for female students or even reverse the preference in favor of males? It's such a great question because part of the solution to girls' education is boys' education. It's not, this is not just an issue of, of having access to a classroom. It's an, it's an issue of discrimination. It's an issue of equality. It's, it's an issue of cultural attitudes. Um, and while some communities may be more progressive or less progressive than others, unless boys and girls have equal access to education, that's, that's the moment when we can start to have conversations about appreciation for one another, ending discrimination, working together, looking at um, unconscious bias that we may have against um, others. And so all of these issues are at play. And so educating girls, as, as the listener says, isn't the only solution to girls' education. We actually need to be educating boys as well. Jennifer Rigg, the, a sort of follow-on question to that has to do with if, if these investments in girls' education have such a huge impact, what's going on with the education of boys that it doesn't have the same impact? Sure, thank you. It's a great question. And I think as Justin just said, transformative education for girls and boys is critical, right? As a way to reverse 
the uh, the changes on on equity. I think numerically, you know, one of the things we're seeing at the global stage is because young women and girls don't have as much access, right? The you know when you crunch those numbers, you'll see even even bigger um, adjustments there. Um, and another piece to that last question that that the listener raised was around what happens once a young woman or a young man has access to education in terms of then equity for uh, continued workforce access, leadership positions, um, are women of color uh, getting that same level of access as well? So I think part of the disparities that we're probably that we're seeing have to do with with racism, other types of inequities. Um, in addition to gender. And we talked earlier about children with disabilities, right? We know that young, young, young women with disabilities learning in a language that they don't speak at home uh, in an emergency setting, you know, there's, there's such a, a disparity for that, that young person. But on the flip side, we can absolutely reverse the trend so that young people of, of all backgrounds are able to, to really uh, gain economically and educationally. Another question for you both from the City Club and, and uh, public radio audience here. I endorse your goals in poor countries with enthusiasm, but how do you make sure that you're supporting national, public, and private efforts in this direction and not imposing something from the outside? Jennifer Rigg, could you start? Sure, happy to. So the Global Partnership for Education, which is, which is housed at the, the World Bank, works hand-in-hand hand with national education systems um, to really build education sector plans that strengthen based on what's needed locally. Uh, and there's always room for improvement to be sure, but we've been very excited about the work that's, that's been underway to absolutely build, uh, you know, hand, working in partnership with both national uh, ministries of education all the way down to, to local levels. As we know in the US, some, you know, many times it really varies depending on what's happening with your local school board, with your local uh, school system. And depending on the country, that's very similar. So absolutely, that's happening in partnership, both uh, regionally, nationally, and locally. Justin Van Fleet. Yeah, and just and just to build onto that, I mean, the listener's absolutely correct. I mean, everything we do is in partnership with governments, but also every single Their World project is co-created and then led by local organizations and partners. And so we're, we're very aware of that. You know, it's not about me sitting here in Long Island, New York, going into country X or community Y, where I'm not from and coming up with a solution, but we're actually trying to help support, build capacity so that local problem solvers can actually come up with solutions and have um, all the tools at their disposal to really to reach out and, and make an impact. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you're viewed with suspicion by uh, by a community that you're trying to get started helping? Definitely, definitely, and it's and it's and it's more. And I think maybe it's even the word help sort of sounds weird because for me, it's more about having conversations. You know, I, I learn just as much, if not more, in all of these projects. You know, the example of Heba, who's out there running this project in Lebanon. I mean, she's the rock star in this, not not me. We're just helping to create an enabling environment. Um, and I even think of even people that I work with day to day. And, and Jen brought up the issue of, of um, children with disabilities. My one colleague, Vibhu, um, she's from India and she, she has a visual impairment. And she still went to school. And when it came time to take her exams to leave the classroom, they wouldn't let her use a screen reader. And so she obviously wouldn't be able to, to take this. They said, you can't bring in external aids in to take your exam. 
So she went and she fought and she protested and sat outside the government offices and they eventually let her user screen reader take it. And I'm so glad they did because Vibu now works with us as our disability inclusion expert. It is helping work on inclusive technologies to help other girls and boys around the world be able to have screen readers and devices to access education. And so it's that, that idea that young people that you pointed to, Jen, and also people in their own communities have the solutions and ideas. And I see our role as, as simply working with them um, and helping provide additional tools to support them and build that up. It's an important lesson uh, as well for local communities here in the U.S. seeking to local organizations seeking to assist communities and and create that enabling environment that you speak of. Another question: um, Is there any country in particular that's excelling at the education of girls? And if so, what can others learn from those efforts? Justin. It, it's, um, I'd say it's even greater than countries that are excelling. It's really communities and programs that are making an impact. I look at Pakistan and a program that, that we supported a few years ago around child marriage-free zones. And our colleague Bela Jamil set up this area where it was about young girls, if they were going to be married, out, married off, um, the boys and girls in the community would actually go and visit the family and try to encourage the family to not do that and to let the girl um, continue with their education. And they had a huge impact. I mean, I think around the world, it's something like 23 young girls are married off every minute um, and, and pulled out of school. And so it's a, an astonishing number. And so that's one project that's also worked in Bangladesh and other countries around the world. Cash transfers so that poorer families do send their kids to school. They've worked throughout Latin America and India and other countries. Um, and then things like female teachers, role models, um, bathrooms, um, so that girls have their own bathroom. All of these are things that work in different places around the world and have tremendous impact for very simple interventions. Can you go back uh, a, a second and explain what you mean by cash transfers? Are you talking about direct payment to families? Exactly, yeah. So if families were to send their, their children to school as opposed to keeping them home to work or do other things, the family would actually receive a payment and sometimes it's a food stipend, sometimes it's a direct cash transfer um, to the family. So it's sort of, it serves as a financial incentive to keep children in school as opposed to pulling them out to work. Um, and it's been particularly effective in, in underserved and low-income for low-income families around the world. Jennifer Rigg, are there particular communities or, or countries you'd like to lift up? Sure, thanks so much. Um, so across the global campaign for education, uh, we have colleagues that are active in over 100 countries. And like Justin just said, you know, um, the, the pieces that I'll add that we're seeing um, are especially working in in girls education as well and and maybe i'll expand too on that on for um, disability inclusive education um, we're finding that uh, some countries have been able to just recently pass new laws uh, so that it's it's now uh, legally allowed and in fact encouraged for um, for adolescent girls uh, after they you know they might be pregnant they might have a child to be allowed to have access to school um, in some countries, that's still a barrier. Um, you know, so when we're thinking about young women at, at all ages being able to, to have access to education. Um, and then uh, what we're finding as well is, you know, UNESCO has a, a really impactful story on their website um, that everybody can, can access about a young woman in Afghanistan who in the midst of COVID is not able to access her, her school at all, has been out of school for over six months now. Um, but what is working is trying to find ways that, um, that she can continue her learning with a small group of other young women. Um, so we're seeing real, um, real leadership at local level, 
from young women themselves to make sure that education can continue. Jennifer Rigg is the executive director of the Global Campaign for Education U.S. Justin Van Fleet is our other guest at your City Club Friday Forum today. He's president of Their World and executive director of the Global Business Coalition for Education. Uh, this is the City Club Friday Forum. I'm Dan Malthrop. You can join with a text. Uh, you can join with your question by texting it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. How are the needs of homeless girls being addressed so they have a safe place to learn during COVID, Jennifer Rigg? Um, it's so critical, right? I mean, we, we find that especially for um, any young woman experiencing homelessness, that's a real barrier. Um, I think it does vary depending on the, the local context that you're in. So, for example, if that young woman has, has access to a shelter, um, you know, the, for example, the, the school system that I'm in and in, in just outside of Washington, D.C. in Maryland, um, there, there is a local law making sure that all young people experiencing homelessness have, should have the same access to, uh, to education. But unfortunately, in reality, it, it varies depending on, you know, what can be provided. Some efforts like um, through communities and schools can also make a big difference. So making sure that um, I mean, in the midst of COVID, this is through virtual school potentially, but that uh, supports um, engagement with school-based social workers um, and mental health providers, um, as well as uh, community connectors to make sure that that young woman has access to the supports that she needs so that she can continue uh, her schooling becomes so critical. I want to ask both of you, um, what you think the the really big bets are that we ought to be taking there was this there was this moment about 10 months ago when the world sort of shut down economically because of the, because of covid and a lot of people started thinking wow this is this is a, a moment that offers an extraordinary opportunity to rethink how we do everything and if we if that moment if that wasn't a mirage and we could rethink how we do everything what are the things that we ought to be doing right now so that six months from now, 12 months from now, when the pandemic is in the rearview mirror, inshallah, um, that we are actually, um, that things are different? Yes. J Jennifer Rigg. Great question. First, early childhood education and play-based access to early childhood development. That looks different in the midst of COVID. As people, as we get through this crisis, it will become, you know, the access can continue, right? And this gives us the opportunity to really make sure that right from the start, young children, their caregivers, their entire support networks have access to early learning. We know that education early has to be linked to supports for, for health, for nutrition, for access to safe uh, water, sanitation, and hygiene as well, for example. Um, so, so Justin alluded to it earlier, but but that is the one of the biggest bets that we know, you know, the research is so solid. We know that inclusive early learning uh, makes a huge difference. When it comes to um, helping to overcome barriers for girls, for children with disabilities, we can't wait until they reach what would be school age. Uh, we can't wait until age five, six, or seven. That's too late. Um, and we know that the earlier uh, we can start those interventions and those supports, the better. The other thing I would say is fully mainstreamed, inclusive school settings. 
Um, so making sure that um, that girls, that children with disabilities, that young learners um, get that support that they need um, in an inclusive way with the support, um, you know, that and the teachers are, are able to get the full uh, support and the, the training, um, not only at the beginning of their careers, but, but in an ongoing way. Um, and then building that equity uh, from the start is, is really uh, critical. This year in particular, um, we know that girls' education is likely to be on the agenda at the G7 Summit hosted by the UK government. And then right after that, the Global Partnership for Education will be holding a large education, global education summit with replenishment. So the opportunities are there. Uh, obviously, let's not wait until, until July. Let's take action now. Um, but the opportunities are there to build even stronger partnerships and investment for, to reach more girls around the world. Justin Van Fleet. First of all, I cannot, I'm so happy that Jen brought up early childhood education. If there is one thing that we need to get right in this country and across the world, it's investing in children zero to five. 90% of a kid's brain is fully formed by the age of five. And the fact that we wait and invest most in the education after the age of five and the development after the age of five is shocking to me. And if you take what the US and the World Bank and UNICEF and all of the international agencies combined contribute to the poorest kid in the poorest country for the early years, it adds up to 26 cents per child per year compared to the thousands of dollars we invest in young people in our own communities here in the US. And so if you wanna talk about inequities and you wanna talk about inequality, it starts at birth. And that's the number one biggest bet. So Jen, thanks for bringing that up. And I think the other part is, teachers. I don't know one parent who has not had a more profound appreciation for teachers after trying to homeschool their own children than parents over the past year. And so I think really looking at how do we provide support for teachers? How do we invest more in teachers? Um, because they really are the frontline workers. And then investment. It, the projections show that most governments in the U.S. and around the world, their education budgets are going to go down about 8% over the next year because of the impact of the coronavirus on, on economic growth. Um, education's on the chopping block. There'll be funding put into job creation, funding put into health response. Education needs to be right up there because of all the reasons we talked about. It needs to be part of the big stimulus package. And there are all of these organizations around the world. This issue is so big, it's greater than any one organization or institution. So we need a big global stimulus focused on funding education. Um, and leading up to these big summits, the G7 and all these others, there's another program, the International Finance Facility for Education, which would inject $5 billion into education around the world. The UK supports it. The Netherlands have put money into it. The US is empty, not at the table. Um, so there's a real need for US leadership in the US and around the world on education issues. One of the lessons of COVID is that um, the school facility, the building itself, isn't as indispensable as perhaps we thought it was. And I wonder if you, if either of you have thoughts about if you were going to reinvent public education, what it might look like or what lessons we might carry forward in a newly designed education system. It's such an awesome question. It, it's your mind just be completely creative because it's it's this hybrid environment. We need to embrace technology. We need to build infrastructure, but we also need that human connection with others and, and, and you know, play-based learning. We need to have fun. Learning needs to be relevant, but there's also all of these other support systems from um, having food, 
and nutrition to having a health worker in the schools and classrooms. I mean, we can create a whole ecosystem for success here. We, it's not rocket science. We know what makes a quality education and it's whether or not we want to do it. I think that's the real question in my mind. Jennifer Rigg. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think also um, as we build stronger uh, public education systems for everybody to have access, reducing those barriers become critical. So thinking about how there's um, support built in from the beginning for early childhood education, not just an add-on for for uh, younger audiences before uh, kindergarten or first grade. And then making sure that um, you know we have some legal frameworks across the US in terms of reaching all children with disabilities, but there's so much more around the, the globe to be done to make sure that, that schools are built fully in a much more integrated, inclusive way. Um, and that's thinking about the access point, but it's also thinking about the barriers for young people to safely get to the school. Um, and then the, the thinking about health clinics, access to um, full psychosocial, emotional learning supports, within that school setting becomes critical as well. I think when we think, you know, to finally build more resilience for any future shocks or emergencies, the other thing that we can think about is helping to ensure that there's low technology, adaptive technology that's um, appropriately supported um, so that, you know, so that teachers have that support that they need so that if in the future, um, people can't come physically to, to a school. We have those backup plans ready to go and, um, and students can continue learning no matter what might come up. Related audience question for you both uh, to that final point. Do you think that the shift to online and remote learning will ultimately help or hurt your current efforts to educate girls around the world? I think it can help and I think it can hurt. I mean, I think it opens up this whole new window. I mean, the thing is, you don't necessarily have to go to school to learn something. I, if I want to do something, I can look on YouTube and figure out how to fix a window in my house or learn whatever other skill I might need. And so there is an opportunity to really use digital technology to enhance learning. It's, it's not a bad thing. But again, it's not the only thing that we need. Um, and we need to be creative and we really need to look at how we can use it as a force for, for good. Jennifer Rigg, the, in the United States during COVID, um, nearly all the jobs that were lost last quarter were jobs held by women. Education is obviously important, but women are still at risk for job loss and economic insecurity. How do we remedy that? So childcare and early childhood supports are so vital, um, as well as uh, that type of um, support system and, and childcare access throughout a young person's life. Um, you know, I think uh, Justin could speak to this, but, but companies um, and employers are, you know, starting to look at what types of new supports can we all be offering for uh, for employees so that there's an increased equitable uh, recognition of of how to help make sure that that people can continue working they can have that balance they need and support their kids and and their families at the same time i think the other pieces you know we talked about this earlier um, but the more we look at girls education and access for all children to transformative education to really bake, break down equity barriers, um, you know, and that and that helps us to uh, create that transformation that's needed um, ultimately in the workplace as well. 
we, we began this conversation talking about the, the state of affairs around the world and talked also about the, um, about the trends over the last few decades and the progress that has been made. Ultimately, do you two believe this is a solvable problem or is, this, or is that the wrong way to think about it? And what is, what is success? What does that ultimately wind up looking like, Justin Van Fleet? Why don't you start? Success is where any young person, it doesn't matter your race, your income level, that you have a ladder for opportunity. You have a way to make, to unleash your potential. That's what success is. And, and the thing that sometimes we throw these numbers out there and it seems like such a big challenge that, that's in front of us. But again, I go back to the point, it's such a simple solution. We know what works in education. It's not rocket science. If you have a meal, if you have a teacher that wants to really work with you, if you have young people, you have technology, all of these things around you, you can survive, you can thrive, you can build a better future through education. It doesn't require, some of these, these numbers sound huge. They're not that big compared to the other things we put money in around the world in our own country. It's a small investment with huge impacts. Um, and so for me, it, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer. Jennifer Rigg. I agree. Absolutely, success is possible, and um, it, and in fact, it's it's not an option, right? We have to make sure that every young person has access to quality, inclusive education. It's the the critical link that will help to make sure that then, um, you know, when we look at at COVID nineteen, for example, you know that education is vital so that then future uh, frontline health workers get that training that they need. Um, to, to be able to support and, and help people um, through uh, crises like this in the future. It's also vital for helping to make sure that then new generations of leaders get that, that early education and, and that support throughout their careers that they need to, to lead from local to global levels. Finally, in sort of 30 seconds or less, how can people help if they want to get involved? If you want to get involved with us, go to theirworld.org, sign up for our newsletter. Um, every week you'll get some news about what we're up to and how you can engage. If you're a young person, you can be part of our campaigners, join our Global Youth Ambassador Program. And if you're a business, get in touch. We want to have you as part of our coalition working to end the global education crisis. Jen Rigg. Thanks so much. So please, uh, similarly, for the Global Campaign for Education US, go to our website at gce-us.org. People of all ages are invited to subscribe, to, to get involved. We make it easy for you to also contact your policymakers. Uh, we have an action that's active right now um, on the, the COVID supplemental funding and appropriations at the, the national and global levels. And so it literally takes less than 30 seconds to reach out to your members of Congress. So taking action, uh, joining, um, taking those 30 seconds even once a month can have a huge impact to help girls around the world. Jen Rigg is the executive director of the Global Campaign for Education U.S., Justin Van Fleet, president of Their World and executive director of the Global Business Coalition for Education. Thank you both for being part of our City Club Friday Forum today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us. Our forum today is the Nathu Agarwal and Roy Blackburn Forum, established in memory of Mr. Agarwal and Mr. Blackburn, who set inspiring examples and exhibited a lifelong commitment to education, in particular women's and girls' education. We're grateful for the support of City Club member Raj Agarwal and his family in establishing this forum. 
Thanks also to members, sponsors, and donors, and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. We have four such conversations coming up next week. Tuesday night, our Happy Dog Takes on the World series takes on the topic of coup, of the coups, of coups, rather, and the fragility of democracies around the world. Wednesday, a look at new decision-making criteria being used in transportation planning in our region. Thursday, a full hour on the COVID vaccines. We will bust a few myths and get you some solid, dependable, truthful, factual information. And next Friday, we're back here talking about the state of equity in higher education. Spoiler, we have a lot of work to do. You can find out more and see what else is coming up at cityclub.org, and you can check out what you missed there or on PBS Passport, Roku, Amazon Fire Stick, Vimeo, and, of course, our YouTube channel. Also, the 11th and final episode of Democracy Unchained was released last night. We take a step back and look at the big picture of how to make, how to make democracy work better for everyone and for future generations. Check it out, democracyunchained.io. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong. Stay healthy. Please wash your hands. Please keep your distance. Keep wearing a mask, maybe two if you need to. And if you get a chance to get a vaccine, please take that chance. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on Ideastream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.